chapter 41. Be silent before me, O isles, become still, you peoples. Let them come forward and state their case. Let us stand trial together. In the creation, there are peoples and islands. The isles refer to people on the islands, or continents. And they have some kind of reeve or argument here against God and his people. Whenever you get people ascending to a higher level on the spiritual ladder, you also have horrendous opposition towards such people, toward the servants of God. And obviously somebody's stirred up because they are claiming something, and the Lord wants to bring them to trial, bring them to court where they can plead their case, and he'll plead his. And it's worldwide. Verse 2, in that context, in that context of opposition, worldwide opposition and dichotomy between two different kinds of people, the ones who are exalted beings and the others who are Babylon and the world who are opposing opposition, in that context appears the Lord's servant. And in a sense, we have here creation in verse 31, chaos in verse 1, and creation again in verse 2. Who has raised up righteousness from the east, calling him to the place of his foot? Who has delivered nations to him, toppled their rulers, rendering them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Righteousness is a person here, obviously, as salvation is a person, the Lord himself, throughout the book. How can he be called righteousness? The answer is because he exemplifies righteousness in every respect. How? By keeping the law of the covenant and proving faithful to God under all conditions. That constitutes righteousness by God's definition or by the prophet's definition. It's not self-righteousness. It's not going to church, doing this, doing that. Yes, that's all part of it and can lead you there. But by God's definition, this person personifies righteousness. He's there. This is Christ personifies the law and the word. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. How can he be the Word? Because he lives by every word of God. He personifies the Word of God because he has lived by every word of God. He's passed every test. He is the Word. He is the law. He's abided by every law. He's passed every test. And you become that. You begin to personify that when you do that. How can the Lord be described as salvation? Because He is salvation. He's it. Why do we come unto Christ? We come unto Christ because He is salvation itself. He leads us there. He shows us the way. He's an example for it. He gives us the law. We do His will and we become saved. And He's it. He's wrought out the atonement for our sins, paid the price for our transgressions. He is salvation. The name Jesus means salvation. It was the perfect name for Jesus Christ, for our Savior. And there are two, two arms of God, righteousness and salvation. And this is the servant, the one who precedes salvation. And righteousness in the book of Isaiah precedes salvation. And that means that you can't be saved unless you're righteous. But it also means that the servant is a forerunner to the coming of the Lord. Where does this guy come from? Well, he comes from the east in relation to the Lord's covenant people. Well, where is that? The Middle East or the Orient, where? We don't know. We do know that in the book of Revelation, the angel from the East is the one who seals up the 144,000 servants of God. A similar scenario you have in Isaiah, so obviously 
the angel from the east and the righteousness from the east are the same individual. They accomplish the same purposes. Who has raised up righteousness from the east, calling him to the place of his foot? The place of his foot is the promised land. Well, which promised land? Well, Isaiah is speaking from Palestine. So, the east would be in relation to Palestine, no doubt, and the foot would be Palestine, promised land there. The earth is also his footstool, so it can also be an angel coming from heaven to earth. You can look at it on another level and interpret it that way. Who has delivered nations to him? Topple their rulers. The raising up is a creation motif and calling. The same as calling each one by name in verse 26 of chapter 40. Really, the apex of God's creation are those who are renewed in strength. As an example, this one from the East, this righteousness from the East. He's the best example of such a person. We've gone from creation of the heavens, the earth, the nations, Israel, exalted people in Israel, and now the servant, or this person. It's all become focused to one particular person. He's like the model. He's like your showpiece. He's exhibit A of God's creation. And all these others are also his exhibit in verse 31. And who are they? They're all the other servants of God that assist him. They're all doing God's work together at that time. And the nations of the earth are opposing them. But the Lord empowers him over the nations. He topples their rulers. Where do we have a precedent for that? You remember how Jeremiah was empowered by the Lord to overthrow kingdoms, to throw down and to plant, says in the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah there is a type for the servant. He's given that power, and there is a precedent for that in Jeremiah. Topple their rulers, running them as dust to his sword. So he's a warrior. This is a warrior figure. As driven stubble to his bow. Dust and stubble are chaos motifs. So this person, this person from the east, who comes to the promised land, is given power, empowered by the Lord, to make chaos of nations and rulers. To make chaos of them. When you are reduced to dust and stubble, you're a non-entity. You don't exist anymore. The body, the human body, decomposes into the dust. When it does, it no longer exists. That's why dust is a chaos motif. But from the dust can come a new creation. That's how the whole thing starts. That's what Isaiah is teaching you by alternating these themes over and over and over and over. So there he is, a warrior. You say, well, God wouldn't send a warrior like that. I mean, oh. Well, he does, because later on, as everybody has a paradigm that's higher than himself, so he has a paradigm higher than himself. And that's the Lord himself. Chapter 42, verse 13. The Lord will come forth like a warrior, his passions aroused like a fighter. He will give the war cry, raise the shout of victory over his enemies. So there God himself is described as a warrior. When you compare that passage with this one, chapter 41, verse 2, we see that the servant is just following the example of his Lord. God can be a lamb and he can also be a warrior. Depends on the circumstances. And so with his servants. They can be a Moses who schools the people of Israel in the wilderness. And they can also be a Moses who stretches out his arm over Pharaoh's armies. And they all drown in the depths of the sea. 
He puts them to flight, passing on unhindered by paths his feet have never trod. So his putting them down is very easy for him. No one can stand in his way. These chapters, 41 through 46, parallel chapters 9 through 12 of Isaiah. Same as we saw, chapter 6 through 8 parallel, chapters 36 through 40. You'd expect the same kind of thing to be going on in the first block of chapters that parallel with it. There we have a shoot that springs up from the stock of Jesse and a branch from its graft that bears fruit. And there we have him smiting the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips slaying the wicked. He doesn't even have to fight them with the sword. He's given power over them simply by his word. Just like a translated being has or can do. Also in chapter 41, verse 2, sword and bow are metaphors that describe the servant himself. The Lord delivers nations to his sword, in other words, into the hands of his servant. He is the sword. The sword that comes out of his mouth in chapter 11 can be read two ways, as we discussed. It can be the servant himself, and his word is powerful, or it can be the Lord using his servant as an instrument. You can read it two ways. Verse 4, Who is at work accomplishing this? For ordaining dynasties, I the Lord first and last am he. And this implies that this person, this righteousness, starts off a new dynasty. And the work is part of the work of the latter days of destruction and deliverance. So a new dynasty begins at that time, as it were, with this individual, this warrior. I, the Lord, first and last am he, implies that the Lord who began the work also finishes it. And that there is a juxtaposition or a parallel relationship between Israel's early history and Israel's latter day history, the end time history. He's the first, he started creation, and he's also there at the end, bringing it to a conclusion. Another way of saying that in Hebrew is Aleph Tav. Aleph is the first letter, and the Tav is the last letter, or in Greek, Alpha and Omega. And it means that God is there in the beginning, is there at the end, and all the way in between, of course. But in a particular sense, that there is an initial fulfillment of divine history, and then a latter-day fulfillment of divine history and that the one parallels the other. Verse 5, The isles look on in fear, the ends of the earth are in trembling. They flock together and come to one another's aid, saying each to his fellow, Courage. Courage, man, hang in there. It's going to be okay. Is it? <laughs> not necessarily, not for those guys. Because when the Lord starts to intervene in the affairs of his people, it's very rough for their enemies as Pharaoh and his armies found out, as the Egyptians found out. Who is it that's put in fear in the end time? It's the wicked. The righteous don't fear. They overcome their fear. Chapter 41, verse 5, where people are hanging on to one another for support and thus relying on the arm of flesh. And he contrasts that in verse 8 with Jacob or Israel, but that's the category that has yet to pass the test. We'll see what that test is right now. You are Israel, my servant, and Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my beloved friend. 
You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, called from its farthest limits, to you I say, you are my servant. I have accepted you and not rejected you. These are people that are still hanging in there, but who need encouragement. And where are they getting their encouragement from? From one another? No, from God. Which implies that they're turning to God, and God is saying, I haven't rejected you, I have accepted you. Even though it may seem that you're rejected. Even though it may seem, like in verse 27 of chapter 40, our path has become obscured from the Lord, our cause overlooked by our God. They have gotten past that point of self-deception and murmuring, and now they've gotten themselves into a position where God is speaking to them. So these people are in the process of passing the test, but they're not there yet. They're still called Israel or Jacob. They're being reconverted to their God. They're renewing the covenant relationship with Him. They're repenting, and they're returning from the ends of the earth, or they're being called from there right now through the servant, that's his job, is to bring them back to gather Israel from the four directions of the earth, chapter 11. And they are also his servant. They are a corporate servant, as it were. As a people, they are his servant. As the one servant is an individual servant, they are a corporate servant. They are chosen of God. They need to be reminded of who they are, offspring of Abraham, my beloved friend. They could become his beloved friend. That's a special descriptive term, beloved friend, of someone who ascends a spiritual ladder to a very high station. Someone with whom the Lord has made unconditional covenants. With his people Israel as a whole, he made a conditional covenant, the Sinai covenant. And they can renew that covenant any time. But he will not make with them an unconditional covenant as he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until they pass the test that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob passed. Then they will become his beloved friends too. But they're not there yet. That idea, that paradigm of Abraham is held out to them as something that they can aspire to and emulate. And they are acknowledged as the covenant people as Abraham's offspring. Whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, just like Abraham. Abraham was taken from the ends of the earth, from Ur of the Chaldees, and brought to the Lord's foot or footstool, or to the promised land, called from its farthest limits. From beyond the horizon, from Mesopotamia he came, into the land of Canaan. And now, Abraham's descendants are called to do the same thing. Whenever a name is mentioned like that here, in this case, Abraham, it always is associated with some precedent that that individual set. What was the precedent that Abraham set in Israel's history? It was somebody who came from the ends of the earth, was called from a far distant place to leave his kindred and his friends, his kinsfolk, and come to a strange place there to inherit it. For that Abraham set a precedent, and that is now what is required of Abraham's descendants. He is the type for them to follow. They are now called from the ends of the earth, just like him, to leave their friends and their kinsfolk, to come to a strange land that will become the land of their inheritance. That's a test. If you're like Lot's wife, you don't want to leave, right? If you're like Lot, you come out, especially when destruction's coming in. And that's what's happening here. If you stay behind and are not gathered out, you'll be destroyed in a Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction because that's what's happening at this very time of the gathering out. The world is destroyed. 
To you I say, you are my servant, I have accepted you and not rejected you. There's doubt in your mind, you're wavering. So come on, get your act together. Verse 10, be not fearful, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Your God is your covenant God, expresses the covenant relationship. To be with him is the name Emmanuel. God is with us. When God is with you, you can accomplish his purpose. There is protection. You don't need to fear. It's a test, yes. It's a test because you don't know what's ahead. But if you trust in God, he will protect you. I will strengthen you. I will also succor you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. So just as the servant is strengthened, or those who hope in the Lord are strengthened and renewed in strength, so may anybody, so long as they trust in God. So may Jacob or Israel. They will be strengthened. How? First of all, through the agency of the Lord's servant, who is the right hand of God, his right hand man, so to speak. Another way of translating my righteous right hand from the Hebrew is, righteousness my right hand. So, I will uphold you with righteousness, my right hand. In fact, that is a more correct translation, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in the English. So, most translations say, my righteous right hand, instead. So, it is the servant who upholds them. He's the shepherd that shepherds the flock, leads them gently along. He follows after the good shepherd, who is the Lord himself. Each one has a model above him. As God strengthens and succors him, so he strengthens and succors God's people. Verse 11, See, all who are enraged at you shall earn shame and disgrace. Your adversary shall come to naught and perish. There is a test going on, a horrendous test. People are enraged. They're incensed against the people of God and against his servant. So what are we to do? Vacillate in the middle of that? Or to trust firmly in God. It's a test, especially when you're newly being converted to the God of Israel, to face such circumstances. But all the precedents of the past show that God comes true for them. Your adversary shall come to naught and perish. That's a chaos motif again. Strengthening and upholding is creation. It's a renewal. And always the ones who earn shame and disgrace are the wicked in Isaiah, the ones who fight against the Lord's people or the idolaters. Links up with the idolaters in many cases, as we'll see in the next few chapters. So they have adversaries. You cannot help but have adversaries when you become the people of God. It's part and parcel of the nature of being God's people. When you covenant with Him, you do it with your eyes open and know that you're going to get opposition. And the higher you ascend the spiritual ladder, the more intense the opposition becomes. Those who are called the Lord's servants in the latter part of the book of Isaiah are dealing with cultists and false brethren and murderers and idolaters and apostates. They're coming under intense opposition. And that very opposition is what lifts them higher because in the midst of that opposition, they cry to God for deliverance and for help and for strength. And that's how he empowers them. That's when he empowers them. And that empowerment remains with them from then on. It's part of our very progression. Part of the ascent upward is that there are those who try to drag you down and God strengthens you against them. 
Should you look for those who contend with you, you shall not find them. Whoever wars against you shall be reduced to nothing. Chaos motif again, or the continuation of the chaos motif. This is serious stuff. It's an all-out war. It's contention, war, people enraged at you, fighting against you. That's what you have to wade through in order to come out in a delivered or saved condition. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, expressing the possessive, your covenant God, hold you by the right hand and say to you, Have no fear, I will help you. Obviously, these people are in a covenant relationship with God. They're not the ones in verse 27 of chapter 40 anymore. They've gotten past the point of murmuring, complaining, and deceiving themselves. Now they're being held by the right hand, or strengthened by or upheld by the right hand of God. So His servant is empowering them. He is God's right hand. Through his instrumentality, God helps them. There's also the left hand of God, which is the king of Assyria. The hand of punishment versus the hand of deliverance. The two hands of God, two hands of the Lord. The king of Assyria is the left hand smiting and punishing, and the Lord's servant is the right hand of deliverance delivering them. Have no fear, I will help you. Have no fear at the time when fear would be justified. Be not afraid, you worms of Jacob. O men of Israel, be not dismayed. Why worms? Because that's where you start. You start with lowly worm and you end up as a butterfly. You start with being trodden down, and you end up being the one treading the wicked down. That's how God does it. He didn't exalt Jacob until he had kowtowed down to Esau. Christ himself came and submitted to Caiaphas. There is always humiliation before exaltation, suffering before salvation, a humble state before an exalted state. And who is this category? Jacob or Israel? The ones who are in the midst of passing the test or in process of. I am your help, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So redemption is defined as help in the face of physical enemies. Because the Lord's redemption is not just spiritual. If you take the word redeem or redemption all the way through the book of Isaiah, you can get a definition of what it means. And it includes physical deliverance, as it does here. It's in parallel with redemption. I am your help, I am your redeemer. In the face of physical enemies, they are redeemed. The Holy One of Israel. As an exemplar of holiness, who does he deliver? Those who are like him, those who are holy, those who are sanctified. And when they become holy and sanctified like he is, or in a measure like he is, Then what happens to them? He empowers them. I will make of you a sharp-toothed, threshing sledge of new design full of spikes. It's like some modern farm implement. You shall thresh mountains to dust and make chaff of hills. Dust and chaff are chaos motifs. And here they have power over their enemies. They're a sharp-toothed threshing sledge, threshing their enemies and making chaos of them. But that's what righteousness from the East did in verse 2. He threshed nations to dust and stubble, or chaff, same thing. As he does, so they do. And mountains in Isaiah is a metaphor for nations, and so are hills, the lesser nations and peoples. So they're threshing nations to dust as well. They're both involved in a new conquest. That's what the Israelites did when they came and conquered the land of Canaan. 
They threshed nations to dust and made chaff of hills in their conquest of the promised land. So it implies that these two, the individual person, righteousness on the east, and the individual servant and the corporate servant, Jacob or Israel, are doing identical things. And do you think they're doing so independently of each other? No, of course not. They're doing like Moses did with the Israelites. He led them into battle. Or Joshua did the same thing. Together they're doing this. Because it says that he is strengthening them and helping them by his right hand, empowering them. So obviously they're doing it together. And so we go back to chaos, the chaos motif. There is another Old Testament prophet that basically quotes this same thing, saying that one will go up at the head of them or in front of them and they will thresh nations to dust. He uses the word thresh and uses the word nations and dust. What's going on is that when he gets involved with them by converting them, the ancient covenant people of the Lord, to renew the covenant with their God, God empowers them and they basically go through the same scenario as Moses and the Israelites did when they conquered the land of Canaan. As you winnow them, a wind shall take them away, a tempest dispel them. Then will you rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Because then you'll have the victory over your enemies, the ones who have been oppressing you, the ones who are enraged at you, the ones who are making war against you. And you'll give God the credit, of course. The wind and the tempest is storm imagery that's used all the way through the book of Isaiah to denote the day of judgment when the king of Assyria does his thing. Those enemies of the people will perish in that day when the king of Assyria does his destruction. In fact, the wind and tempest are probably metaphors for the king of Assyria himself. He is the wind, he is the tempest. Verse 17, When the poor and needy require water and there is none and their tongue becomes parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer their wants. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now, this is similar to the situation when Israel wandered through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. They came conquering as they went. There were times when, since it was through the wilderness and through the desert, when there was no water to drink. And from now on, you'll see that Isaiah raises this issue many, many times, that as they wander through the wilderness or through the desert, some people will say, Oh, we can't go out there. There's no water out there. And he keeps reassuring us that there's going to be water out there, that the Lord will provide water just as he provided it for the Israelites. Because those are the very things that the Israelites said. There's no water here. Why do you bring us into this wilderness? To perish? And so Isaiah keeps reassuring them over and over and over again, implying that there are those people who are saying such things and then preempting that situation by saying there's going to be water in that exodus. And who is it that goes? The poor and needy. They're the ones who go in the Exodus. The poor and the needy in the book of Isaiah are defined by parallelism as his covenant people, which we saw earlier. So who specifically goes in the Exodus? They do, the poor and the needy of God's people. The rich, in other words, don't, or they may not, because they didn't use their riches, apparently, for relieving the poor and needy of their oppression which is what Isaiah requires of his people, one of his definitions of righteousness. Also, having water and having food is a covenant blessing. If they did not have water, if they did not have enough to eat, they would be under a curse. They always have enough. The Lord provides. 
Tongue is another metaphor describing the Lord's servant in this case, which may indicate that one of his tests is to go through a period of real thirst. But that's on a more esoteric level of interpreting. I, the Lord, will answer their want. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now, some of them have forsaken him, and that's the problem. When they do that, then he forsakes them. But not those who turn to him, he doesn't forsake them. So this is good. Verse 18, I will open up streams in barren hill country, springs in the midst of the plains. I will turn the desert into lakes, parched lands into fountains of water. This is the great curse reversal that happens when the desert blossoms, as we read earlier, and turns into a paradisical situation. And it begins in the desert, not in the fertile places. The fertile places of the earth are made into a wilderness, and the wilderness places are made into fertile places. Exact opposite happens with the two. And when does that happen? When the Lord's people come wandering through the wilderness, then it happens. The wilderness blossoms as they come through. Why does that happen? Because the Lord accompanies them. He's with them. He's with them in the cloudy pillar. I am with you. Be not fearful. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. It's God's presence among his people, or the presence of God's power, as manifested in those special servants of God who assist in their gathering in Exodus, wandering to the promised land, is the power that's manifested through the servants also that causes these things. But it's God who does that. Only God can make the desert blossom. No man can do that. I will bring cedars and acacias, myrtles and oleasters in the wilderness. I will place cypresses, elms and box trees in the steppes that all may see it and know and consider it and perceive that the Lord's hand did this, that the Holy One of Israel created it. So there's a new creation. We had the chaff and the dust in verse 15, in verse 16, the wind, the tempest, that's chaos. Now we have new creation again. What is the new creation? The new creation is the desert blossoming and becoming fertile again. The Holy One of Israel created it. But what does it mean when it says the Lord's hand did this? What did the Lord's hand do? Did he create the trees and make the wilderness blossom? No. He helped in the conquest of the enemies. He was the one who empowered God's people in verses 10 and 13. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will hold you by the right hand. What he did was the conquests, the new conquests, as it were of God's enemies and of the people. Just like the Israelites conquered the Canaanite nations. Here there is a division of labors between the Lord and His hand. The division of labors consists of God turning the wilderness into fertile lands and the Lord's servant delivering them from their enemies. It also aligns the Lord with His servant, who is the Lord's right hand. And all the way through, you'll see that alignment, that the Lord acts in concert with his servant, or vice versa. The servant acts in concert with his Lord. And you see that especially in the alternating motifs of chaos and creation. Sometimes God does the creating, sometimes the servant does something that's creative, and sometimes they work together, as in this case. The creation motif is split between the two. Verse 21, Present your case, says the Lord, submit your evidence, says the king of Jacob. Let them come forward and recount to us their prophecies of events heretofore. What were they? Tell us that we may examine them and know whether they were fulfilled. 
So these people that are opposing God's people, who have issues with the people of God, and who are enraged at them and so forth, inciting others against them, now the Lord says, well, you know, if you have a case, come and present it. And one of the things that legitimizes you is if you can prophesy the future and have it come to pass. Then we'll know you're of God. And if you can't do that, you're not of God. Because that's what makes a man of God. If he's a prophet of God, he will prophesy the future and have it come to pass. And if you prophesy something and it doesn't come to pass, then you're not of God. Let them come forward and recount to us their prophecies of events heretofore. What were they? Tell us that we may examine them and know whether they were fulfilled. Or, predict the future for us. You did it in the past. You made predictions based on your statistics and your curves and your charts. You predicted that by the year 2000, thus and thus would happen. And did it happen just like you said? No. So you're frauds. You didn't know God was going to do this, this, and this, did you? That's the kind of argument that's going on here. Were you able to predict things in the past and have them come about? No. Can you predict the future now? I'll give you another chance. Tell us of events to come hereafter so that we may know you're gods. See how he's having fun with these guys? He's so satirical. Perform something good or evil at which we will be dazzled and all stand in awe. It's clear you're of no account and your works amount to nothing. Whoever accepts you is himself an abomination. You're an abomination and they're an abomination if they even have anything to do with you. There's chaos motif again. Nothing. Abomination. Verse 25 is creation again. I have raised up one from the north who calls on my name, who shall come from the direction of sunrise. He shall come upon dignitaries as on mud, tread them as clay like a potter. So the raising up of one from the north is a creation motif. Comes from the direction of sunrise. That's from the east. And that's the same character we saw in verse 2. In this great chiasm of alternating themes of chaos and creation, there's a whole series of individuals that all are really the same person, but just different characterizations. One of his characterizations here is that he calls upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord sends him to assist his people. So he comes from the northeast, really, in relation to Palestine. I suppose it's Palestine. He shall come upon dignitaries as on mud, tread them as clay like a potter. Well, that's what the person in verse 2 does also. He comes upon nations and rulers and treads them to dust and chaff or stubble. So this person, the same individual, treads them down as mud like clay. Those are chaos motifs. He has power over them. Now, of course, that doesn't happen until these nations and rulers have first been oppressive to God's people. They used to tread down God's people. And now the tables are turned. Now what they did to others is done to them. And we see that later on in the book of Isaiah where God's people make their back as the ground and people just walk roughshod over them, tread them down until the servant comes along and reverses the situation, turns the tables on their enemies. And it implies in verse 25 that he's the one that can predict the future. Like it says in verse 22, predict the future for us. They can, but he can. So there's a contrast here between them and him. They're not able to predict the future. Their predictions based on their statistics never were fulfilled because everything changes all of a sudden. There's a whole reversal of circumstances between the wicked and the righteous that they never ever anticipated. And so they're false. They're illegitimate. 
that the servant is legitimate and he's a true prophet as verse 26 also says in verse 27 who announced this beforehand so we would know who announced this turning of the tables ahead of time declared it ahead of time that we might say he was right well in Hebrew he was right there literally says the righteous one it's a pun on the subject of verses 2 and 25 so who declared it ahead of time did somebody? Yes, they did. Who was it? He did. Righteousness did. Well, the righteous one. He predicted it. So he's a true prophet. Indeed, not one could foretell it. Not one of them could. Not one make it known. No one has heard from you any prophetic utterance or any such utterance. Not from the idolaters, not from the opposition, not from the false authorities, the dignitaries and so on, present-day dignitaries. But to Zion, he shall be her harbinger. I will appoint him as a herald of tidings to Jerusalem. So there we have the names Zion and Jerusalem, that repentant category of God's people, that special category. To Zion and Jerusalem, he is her harbinger, the harbinger of good news, a herald of good tidings, namely of the coming of the Lord and his renewal of the covenant with his people, and the day of their redemption, and the coming of the Lord, and the ushering in of the millennium, and so forth, and also of destruction. He harbors all those things, and he predicts all those things, and it all comes to pass, just like he says. And so he's a true prophet, in contrast to them. For when I looked, there was no one, not one who could offer counsel, that is, among the wicked again, or when I questioned them, who could answer a word. They were not even familiar with doctrine. They didn't even know. They lost touch. And that goes for political and religious authorities because in Isaiah they're always in parallel with each other. It's almost like the leadership of a people, whether it's political or religious, is a reflection of the people themselves. So if you have the wicked, they have wicked leaders, both political and religious. If you have the righteous, they have righteous leaders, both political and religious. When I looked, there was no one, not one who could offer counsel, or when I questioned them, who could answer a word. Surely they are all iniquitous, their works worthless, their outpourings are but wind and emptiness. Back to chaos again. So basically you have two sides here. You have a polarization of the righteous and the wicked. Among the righteous are those who repent. Any of God's people. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Zion is a category of those who repent. Who live up to God's standard of righteousness. And then there are those who oppose them. They're always in opposition. You can always tell the evil side by the opposition that they're posing. They're enraged, they're angry, they're mocking or scorning, but they themselves can answer. 